Hi, I'm Pete George, and we are live on Game Changers with Vicki Abelson. Our guest tonight is Mike Lang. <laughs>
this is crazy. This is crazy. Okay, so Pete George back there behind the camera. Thank you, Pete. Mike Lang. Mike Lang, right? It's crazy. So last week, a week and a half ago, thanks to Cindy Beagle, um, at Deborah per Pearl's invitation, I went to Zipper Hall and saw, saw Mike play a jazz concert, which for those of you who know me, jazz is not my thing, and I was absolutely enthralled. I, I, I pounced, attacked, he's here, only a week and a half later, I'm so excited. Before we get to talk to Mike, I just wanted to say um, a quick shout out to Nicole Venables, my hairdresser. Nicole, I love you, she's looking beautiful in Paris. And her hairspray, what's it called, Pete? Fuck off. It's called Fuck Off. Yes, it is. Okay. <laughs> and uh, Nicole Venables at the Ruby Begonia Salon in Studio City. And Rick Smolke, who is the greatest of the great. If you need anything. Hey, Pete, our shaker egg is in here. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we have tissues yeah. and a shaker. Yeah. If you need anything printed anywhere, Rick Smolke's in Chicago. Quick impressions. He will do anything for you. He will give you such a deal if you say that you're friends of mine and... Uh, game changers and here's my bookmarks that he did and my business cards he's truly amazing and he's actually a very philanthropic guy we have to have Mike do a uh, promo for the um, a PSA for the veterans we forgot we have yep. to do that so now I think it's time that we bring Mike in so Mike Mike Lang everybody I'm so excited, Mike. Thank you so much for having us to your home and what a beautiful piano what a beautiful home and um, I know you already told me off camera, but I'd love you to tell everybody about this home and what you discovered when you were purchasing it. Oh my gosh, so personal, so early in the game. I okay. know we have to we have to jump into the to the truth. Okay, so um, this house uh, is in Studio City, and um, my wife Karen and I spent two years looking for a house because we couldn't really? decide. We both kind of grew up on the west side uh -huh. in our later childhood years, and we loved it there, but I was so busy doing recording work, day and evening. It was such a fertile period of, of, of recording work in Los Angeles when I started. When was that? Uh, I started the late 60s after college and stuff, you know. I'm older. Well, we, I am too, but we're, we're going to talk about how you got into it but so okay so we're yeah. talking late 60s yeah so we started looking and I had this crazy idea this is before home studios even existed really you know? yeah but people had you know uh, music rooms right and I had a music room where I lived prior and we thought you know um, I need to find a house that has a pre-existing music room which puts us in 0.5% of the marketplace you know it's nothing oh. and then I finally figured out when I reached a little closer to adulthood mm -hmm. that maybe I could actually add a music room and then I could buy it like a normal Any house. house yeah <laughs> so we, we we finally figured that it would make more sense for us to be in the valley because of the proximity to uh, most of the studios, right. you know, the, the ones in Hollywood, the ones in the Valley, mm. and then the ones on West Side would still be the ones on the West Side. But at right. least I could get home between working a double session during the day and an evening recording session, you know. And so, um, so we started looking around, and um, I knew this was sort of in the general vicinity of where I lived my first four and a half years, but I had no idea what was ahead of me. So we came to this house, and it was owned by a musician named George Greeley, who, uh, he was the composer of a famous TV show called My Favorite Martian. A fabulous And he was a wonderful pianist and a really nice guy. And did I he have a music room? He did not have a music room. Interesting. Yeah, no, he, yeah, he didn't. But anyway, um, the conversation went like this between Karen and, 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 and George Greeley. He said, 
Your husband's a pianist, right? She said, yes. What's his name? Mike Lang. Oh, I've heard of him. Yeah. Is he any relationship to Jennings Lang? And Karen said, Jennings Lang is Mike Lang's father. To which he replied, Jennings Lang built this house in 1940, and I was at one end of the house way over there, and she was over there in the master bedroom area, and all of a sudden I hear, honey, we have to talk about something. <laughs> and so she kind of gently let me know what was going on, and I had to think really hard about whether I wanted to kind of attach myself to that. How, and, how so? Why well, so? Well, memories and not mm -hmm. memories, and just it felt a little unusual, and mm -hmm. at the same time it felt kind of cool. You know, it's like you're looking at both sides of it, and you kind of... Was your father know. still alive? He was still alive. He was still alive. So he knew yeah. that you did this. Yes, he did know that. And, and did it tickle him? Um, it didn't, but for for a lot of personal reasons. Okay. It was a marriage that didn't work out, mm -hmm. and this house was not a symbol of, of good things for him. Mm -hmm. But 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 he came, and he had dinner, you know, once or twice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it came uh, to be a symbol of good things for you, because your career certainly flourished while you lived here. Yes, it's yes. been wonderful. I've been very grateful and very lucky. And um, so we came here, and we really redesigned the house completely. And so now you have a music room. It's now quite I a have music a music room. room yeah. And you know, I wish we could take everybody. I'm turning this around because Pete's already. Look with that nice shot Pete's got. I'm turning this around so that we'll be able to talk to your people when they. Uh, oh, you know, great. Pete's gonna let us know if, when people have questions and stuff. Okay. And, and so I'm I'm just gonna look and I see. I have to remember that my eyes. Uh, have to be up or otherwise I look like I'm looking down. Look at the... um, so I'm just seeing, uh, hi Elle, hi Mary, hi Jim, lots of lots of friends are watching and that's cool. wonderful. So so Mike, so you're a little kid, your father is musical, what, what did your father do? My father started off as an agent to actors oh. and he worked for the Sam Jaffe Agency mm -hmm. and then he went to work for Jules Syme and Lou Wasserman at MCA. Yeah. And then when they decided to purchase Review, mm -hmm. uh, the, the old Universal lot, and mm -hmm. they formed Review Television, uh, he became part of that. And he eventually head, headed the television department. Wow. And then after that, he kind of um, moved up to the motion picture department. He was an in-house executive vice president uh, for motion pictures at Universal. And he um, wow. basically supervised and helped uh, create motion pictures, you know, kind of as an idea guy and as a business guy. And, well, we're uh, going to talk about when we get to it if he helped open that door for you. Um, but was he musical himself? He would say the first. He would be the first one to say that he was not musical. Okay. But here's a really unusual kind of Twilight Zone thing. Later in his life, he mm -hmm. had a stroke that he did not recover from, oh. and, and 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 it. It killed the expressive side. You know, either you can hear and understand, or you can speak and you don't understand. Is that true that you get one or the other? Yeah, because the brain kind of divides itself that way. That's my understanding. Okay. And I have limited knowledge. But mm -hmm. but what happened with him was he could understand, but he couldn't really say very much. He could say yeah, sure, and hi, and you know stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But what he could do was he absolutely could whistle in tune, and I mean it showed me that for people who think. They don't have musicality uh, or are not in touch with it. The brain is so complex, you know, and so things opened up in this odd environment for him that that gave him that. It was just so uh, that's not something he did before. Oh, not at all. Not at all. No, I mean one never knew because he would say he's tone deaf, so it's kind of he shut the door on it anyway. But uh, that's fascinating. Yeah, but music was not his thing. He used to go to the music center because mm -hmm. they. 
you know, went to concerts because my stepmother was a, a singer and an actress, and she loved classical music. Her father was a pianist and conductor, and her mother was an opera singer, so she forced him to get tickets to the thing. But he would take an earpiece so he could listen to the Dodger game. <laughs> so, you know. I love it. And how about your mother? Was she musical? My mother, uh, she died when I was very young because I was just previously speaking of my stepmother. Mm -hmm. and Oh, so you I, were raised by your father and your stepmother? Well, kind, kind of. of, yeah. It's mm -hmm. a multi-chapter kind of uh, mm -hmm. explanation. but um, Which is interesting, Mike, because it turns out I have found this many is Yardley. creative... I don't know if anybody can see Yardley. He's off camera. Yardley's off camera. He's the house, well, camp, house well, we, well, Only if Yardley comes up on your lap are people going to see Yardley. Well... Okay, we'll save that. So, um, because a lot of creative people had tumultuous childhoods, it turns out that mm -hmm. um, successful people often come from tumult, as yes. it were. So, so your mother died died when you were young. But did she sing? Did no, you? she didn't have any of that. But there no. were people in her family who were noted musicians. You know, oh. like a grandfather or a, a great uncle. There was somebody whose last name Carl Friedheim. I think he was a violinist or something. Mm -hmm. It's not very clear to me, but yeah, there was there was reason to believe there was some musical connectivity. And so, when you were little, what's the first thing you wanted to be when you were you musical right out of the get go? Well, it's mostly you know when you're. I started playing piano and getting lessons when I was four and a half. Why so young? That's crazy. Well, no, actually, very serious musicians who become classical virtuosos very often that's when they start. Was it something that you chose? Well, yeah, I was going to get to that. Ah. So, so here's the deal. Mm -hmm. My parents told me that I asked for piano lessons, which I thought was hardly possible. <laughs> but there was a piano. But I, and I mean, I'm, I could understand watching my grandson, because my, my son is a musician. He's uh -huh. really gifted. And, and our grandson is two. Mm -hmm. And he likes to go to the piano and fool around. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I think there's something about that. Um, what I remember is very little, but what, what I think I remember mm -hmm. is that I really was very um, not athletic, not social. When I got older, I was certainly not easy, comfortable with, with girls and all that kind of stuff. I was very, you know, not You're sure You're very myself. social now. I find that really hard to believe. You're very easy in your skin. Well, it took a while. Yeah, okay. It's easy with you. Ah, nice. <laughs> so, 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 um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, mm -hmm. it, you know, at some point I started to have my own identity and start to feel like... Uh, Did success maybe do hope. that for you a little bit? I guess, well, well, the one thing that was really important to me was I needed to be independent from his success. And I needed to have that happen on my own. And mm -hmm. thank God I was in a world where the nepotism has very short life. Is that true? Well, yeah, because if you're not really any good, ah. you can't fool anybody. You know, when you're mm -hmm. playing the piano and people are recording, which is what I end up doing is mostly recording work, mm -hmm. uh, you have to be good. You have to be um, very consistent. Mm -hmm. um, there's not rooms to say, oh, I need to do one more. Need, you know, they're hiring right. musicians with a financial uh, restraining right. thing. And so, fortunately, it was something that I was good at doing or became good at doing, and it, I, it was a good fit. And so, therefore... I became somebody that people would like to have there, and it, it was no longer a question of who I was related to. And that was really important to me. Okay, I, so I let's couldn't find be comfortable if I thought, oh, I'm working because somebody's, you know, trying to curry favor, favor with my father. Is, is that how it's... Okay, so, so you're a little kid, you start taking piano lessons at four, you take to it, obviously, immediately. Yeah, to a certain extent, yeah. So they know your gift. Do you know you're gifted? 
I don't know that a four and a half year old knows stuff like that. Right, but but you know. I knew that that was the only thing that I felt comfortable doing. So therefore, I kind of became this hermit of the piano, mm -hmm. you know, and that, and I loved playing the piano and being creative at it. So mm -hmm. this was the dichotomy of learning written music, classically based music, and playing songs. And my first teacher even exposed me to that. So there was the left brain and the right brain or whatever, you know, the, the person who's looking at written music and making a performance and the person who's actually sitting and improvising or composing. Okay, so what kind of stuff when you're, when you're not four, but as you get a little older, nine, 10, 11, what when kind I, of stuff are you playing good question. on your own? Okay, so I found a piece that was a good show off piece. Not nice. that I was a show off, yeah. but um, there's a piece called The Flight of the Bumblebee, which oh, is sure. part of an opera that Rimsky-Korsakoff mm -hmm. wrote. And, um, a guy named Jack Fina, who was Tommy Dorsey's, or the Dorsey brothers, no, Freddie Martin's pianist okay. in, in the 40s and 50s, mm -hmm. he made an adaptation called B Bumble Boogie, and, and it's a it's a boogie-woogie thing, you know, and um, so I had the printed music for that, and I loved that, and so I would play that, and so that, you know, my parents, when they wanted me to perform, which wasn't really wanted what I wanted to do, but my father was an agent at that time, and, you know, our, we were living in Brentwood, and Joan Bennett was one of his clients, wow. and she'd come over. And um, no, I'm thinking no. Joan Bennett was one of his clients, but I'm thinking of Joan Crawford. So oh she my. came, she came over, Holy. and she was a really over the top person. And you know, and so they get me to play. You know, I play this thing, and she say, "He's a genius. He's a genius." And I'm, I'm nine, and I'm thinking, "This is total bullshit." You know, it's like, what is this? Can you, you say played that? for I'm, Joan Crawford you can say at nine. On Facebook, you right? can say anything you want. Okay, sorry. I, I'm, tr I'm trying really hard not to curse on the air because I'm, I have a very foul mouth and I'm trying to be... I'll, I'll be good. I'm, I, no, you don't have to be good. I'm trying to be good because it doesn't come naturally to me to uh, behave myself, so I'm, I'm doing my best. Joan Crawford, that's great. So you did the... You, you would do like little house, like, oh, let's let's have the kid perform. Well, it was kind of like... Uh, kind of... It was, it was a drag, you know, it's like, you're, I'm not a person where you say, okay, we're going to be on the talent show, we're going to do our number. I, I had a pretty serious relationship to music, and it was quite emotional, mm -hmm. and it was very much my stabilizing thing to do. So to be put on the spot like that, um, hmm. it was a mixed blessing, I guess. And did you, as a young man, like popular music? I mean, were you drawn... Did, did you immediately go to, was classical your thing? Did you like Elvis? Did you like the Beatles? Did you like that stuff? Not initially, no. Mm -hmm. I, my roots were, oddly enough, uh, in classical music and jazz. And but What pulled you to jazz at, at a young age? Listening to it, liking it, um, it's finding It's so complex. That, well, some of it is. Some of it isn't. To me, wow. I mean, you made it sound simple. We're going to straighten you, you out. You didn't make. You made. You made it. You made it very accessible. I don't want to say simple. It's never simple. You made it very accessible, which well, I don't find that it always is. I, I appreciate that, and I find uh, you know doing this concert we just did was a really. It was a huge learning lesson for me. How so? Um, I've I've never done a show in a concert hall that was about me. I split one with somebody else recently. I've done jazz clubs and uh -huh. stuff like that. I've done a lot of different things, but I've never done that where I have the responsibility of a large audience. And it was a very, um, <laughs> I was talking to somebody on the, uh, on the phone today and I was describing it. It's like when you get invited to a lecture and you're supposed to talk to Republicans and Democrats at the same time. It's like, what is your speech about? So here I am working for Piano Spheres, which I've been associated with for its 25 year life because they're about modern contemporary piano music. 
which I don't play professionally, but I love it and I mm-hmm. support it and I've been on their board of directors. So what is modern advisor. contemporary piano music? It's music written in the 20th and 21st centuries by serious, uh, shall we say, experimental or edgy composers, people who are moving the language of music forward. Can you give us an example of who that would be? Well, just like Chopin was more modern mm-hmm. than Beethoven. Mm-hmm. You know, the romantic uh, period of music, it is, as it is called, came after what is called the classical period. I mean, mm-hmm. these are terms that are just, people need to have names for things, right. so they invent them, but it's more complicated than that. But so, if you go from the late 19th century mm-hmm. into the 20th century, there was a major thing that happened because people had gone about as far as they could go with traditional harmony. Mm-hmm. And then there was a group of composers, notably Arnold Schoenberg, who discovered that by going beyond that and having what they call atonality, which means music that's not in a given key, that doesn't have set really functional harmony working, it's just more abstract and Mm -hmm. more expressive in a different kind of way, that was a whole new chapter in music. And I would call that jazz. That sounds like jazz to me because if if it's not, to me jazz, it doesn't have rhyme and reason. It's just kind of all over the place to me to my uneducated ear. Uh, sure, I understand. You know, and, um, but so this is this is modern contemporary music is what you're saying. Yeah, so, so basically this is a group that puts on four to eight recitals and it's usually solo piano or small groups or mm-hmm. maybe with electronics and they perform music that's being commissioned and written today and music that's important music of the 20th century repertoire mm-hmm. that doesn't get performed that much and mm-hmm. they, these wonderful pianists do it. So I knew that was, a segment of my audience and mm-hmm. then I knew there were the people that sort of knew me in the film business right. or in the record business mm-hmm. you know and even there you know the guy who plays but those are too Gold- diverse I was going to say the audience who might like a, a Jerry Goldsmith score might not be a Frank Zappa fan or might not be a Jerry Goldsmith fan right. or might not be a Willie Nelson fan mm-hmm. or you know there's various people have been lucky enough to, to which be is crazy of. which we're going to have to talk about how all that happened in one step, but we, we, we need a... We, we need hours, we need, we need days, exactly. we, need, we need many episodes. It's like one accident after another. <laughs> okay, so so you're young, you're playing, you're mostly leaning towards jazz and classical. I know, and I didn't finish that. Okay. And the other thing that I was leaning toward, mm-hmm. although I never got to play it at that point, was I was exposed to a lot of R&B music as a kid because my parents had African-American people who were working, and so I got to hear the last of the 78s and the beginning of the 45 era of, of, of R&B music and blues-oriented music. And I loved the music, even though I had no connectivity to it as a uh-huh. pianist. But later, I did. Yes. So, and then it all of a sudden I thought, God, I really kind of feel comfortable with this, you know? Well, you played with Aretha and Marvin Gaye and all kinds of crazy people. Um, okay, so so how does this thing that you're doing that you're enjoying? Are you a nerd in school? Are you are you a good student? What's what's your life there about? It's complicated, but I I am I'm a really good student on my own. Oh, I, there I'm you sort go. of like a, a closet musicologist. I have seventeen thousand LPs in a record collection. I have file cabinets full of transcriptions of jazz people. I have you know, novelty piano music of the 30s, things you might not have any familiarity with, a lot of classical music. Mm -hmm. And I spent years accumulating it and kind of absorbing it, and Mm -hmm. books. And and so um, my my knowledge is really diverse and it's really deep, but it's not, um, how can I put this? 
it's not born out of wanting to be in a class and getting a good grade. It's born out of a love of something. I'll hear something and I'll say, oh, I got to check that out. You know, like I just heard a, a pianist, I can't tell you his name, but um, he is on, um, where is he on? It was either Facebook or YouTube, but I mm -hmm. found him. And he's also selling music of transcriptions of his improvisations. Wow. And they're really fascinating. Mm -hmm. So I bought them and I downloaded them. I have PDFs and next week I'll look at them. And that's the story of how I do it. You have stuff. a natural curiosity anyway. When I mentioned the composer of The Handmaid's Tale that I saw last night, you immediately said, okay, what's his name? And you went to look. And his name Adam is Adam Taylor. Adam Taylor. And yes, yeah, so you have that natural curiosity anyway. Yeah. Which has obviously served you. So so you're playing this music. What do you want? What do you, what do you dream of doing with it? Do you have a dream? When does that start happening for you? Um, you're talking about when? I don't know. When does when does it become a thing that this is what I want to do? Oh, and this is what I want to do with it. That seems to be a question that's still being answered. Ah, you know, I just look at it. It's always changing. It's like I went to college. I came back here. I was in the Army Reserve for six months, mm -hmm. and then I came here, and um, I had something happen that was an interesting decision for me. When I was an undergraduate at the University of Michigan, mm -hmm. they had a sort of competition between colleges called the Collegiate Jazz Festival. It was in Indiana, and I played with the trio there, and um, as a result of winning all of these awards mm -hmm. and, and, and being judged by a panel that had Quincy Jones and a wonderful actor wow. named Manny Album and um, Terry Gibbs, a vibes player. All these really important people mm -hmm. heard me when I was like 20 years old, 21 wow. years old. And because we won this award, we got to work at the Village Vanguard for two weeks opposite Stan Getz. Oh my God. I was God. 21. You know, and I mean, this was just like, it, and John Hammond, who's a very mm -hmm. famous record producer, mm -hmm. came down and heard me and he wrote me a letter and he said, if you want to come to New York and, and I mean, they didn't have interns then, but if you want to, you know, work in my office and learn about record production, we'd love to have you. And that was a notable decision I turned down. And, and why did you turn it down? Good question. Mm -hmm. I still ask myself, <laughs> why did I turn that down? But um, I guess I wanted to be home. I had been away for seven years. I went to a private school in New Jersey, mm -hmm. the Lawrenceville School, the prep school, mm -hmm. for three years. And that was amazing because between 1957 and 1959, I was in New York City as many weekends as I could. Were you going to hear a lot of music? All the time. The, like? the greatest jazz ever in that time. You know, I could. I heard Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, several editions of Miles Davis's band, Bill Evans with Scott LaFaro and Paul Motion, the Ornette Coleman Quartet, Clifford Brown and Max Roach, the Count Basie band when he had the big record with Joe Williams, um, Thelonious Monk, I mean, the John Coltrane band when they first formed. Wow. Uh, I got to hear so many, many, many very important historical people. And, mm. um, I think those three years in high school were probably the most formative for me wow. because of, it was all this exposure. And then when I was at University of Michigan, I was studying. And college. never in there were you going to like the Fillmore East, and the you oh. weren't doing any of that. Oh no! no oh, that, none there, of that. There was none of that. There was none no. of that. No. But here's the irony: mm -hmm. when I came and and when I was in the army was when the Beatles happened, and they were playing the early Beatles stuff on you know a Ghetto Blaster, and I hated it. I didn't like it at all. Okay, I, had well, no idea, I had no idea about that kind of music. The only kind of music that was outside of jazz and classical music was blues-oriented music mm -hmm. or gospel or church or that stuff. I relate anything that was earthy. I related to, but there's other stuff. There's you know, 
Rolling Stones. Anyway. But you ended up doing so much of it. So well, did you develop? Did, was it just work? Did you only do it because of work, or did you develop an appreciation for it? I de- I develop appreciation wherever I go. It's mm-hmm. not that I like everything, but mm-hmm. I always try and look for what's good. Mm-hmm. You know, as a as a as a pianist or as a keyboard player, I try and go into a situation and react and be a part of. And so it's not my job to judge. It's my job to be, and that's a different job. And so that tells you a different thing. So I might go to work for somebody that I, in my young, you know, very uh, snotty days, would go, oh, that's garbage, you know. To me, when I was young, I thought it was like thinking like a Nazi, like this is the pure music, this is the give the stuff, and this other stuff, you don't need all that stuff. And I, I had a thing happen to me that was so amazing. I went, uh, my wife Karen and I, who are now best friends, mm-hmm. and I'm now in another relationship, but Karen is wonderful, and we went to um, Vienna, mm-hmm. and we were in the Schoenbrotten Gardens, I think it's called, and there's a very famous composer named Ernst Krenick, mm-hmm. who was kind of in the same era as Arnold Schoenberg, and he was from Czechoslovakia, but he, he, he lived most of his professional life in Vienna, and they were doing a series of string quartet concerts. They were doing eight of them, because Krenick had written eight string quartets, mm-hmm. and um, and then they were pairing them with the late Schubert quartets, which mm-hmm. are some of the great, you know, quartets of the of 19th century. So we're there, and we're outdoors, and it's beautiful in the summer, and uh, music is playing, and uh, I'm on one of my quote-unquote Nazi fantasies, and I said, so, <laughs> you see, this is the Vienna Quartet. They know how to play this music. This is why I love Wilhelm Furtwängler, and this is why I like Arthur Schnabel. You have to have German people playing German music, and that's why French music. And I'm going on with this uh-huh. whole thing. And then I look in the program notes, and the Vienna String Quartet are all college students, and the first violinist is from Australia, and the second violinist is from Cleveland, and so forth. And that was the, the bursting of the bubble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, I guess I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to say what. It's quite all right. <laughs> so, okay, so how does this passion uh, become a living? Because that's very much what this show is about. Okay, is how okay. So I got I got out of college, and my mm-hmm. goal was to make enough money to move out of my family's house. Okay. And so it's like take everything, do whatever you're going to do, and... Um, so I was working like there's a strip club on Sunset Boulevard called the Body Shop, yeah. and they used to have a traditional band with tenor sax, piano, and drums. Uh-huh. And here I am, this rel- relatively testosterone-laden <laughs> 21-year-old, you know, trying to learn the music and looking up way too much, you know. And 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 it was a really funny band because the, the, the tenor player was one of the great jazz musicians. His name was Jack Montrose. He was very well known in the West Coast jazz movement as an arranger and as a tenor player. He really was a, an important guy. And so we would be in the parking lot talking about Stravinsky and then coming back and playing Satin Doll. You know? And so we were playing Satin Doll and the drummer was the leader. Mm-hmm. And, and when we got to the bridge of the thing, he automatically played slower. And I never got it. And I said, so why are you playing slower? Now I'm 21, right? Mm-hmm. He says, I'm following the dancers. I mean, utter BS, <laughs> utter BS. I mean, you couldn't make this up. It's like a bad script. You know? so, but that was the kind of jobs I had. Mm-hmm. And then there was a restaurant on Los Angeles. Are you making your, your living solely as a, as a musician? Do you ever have to do a day job? I did some day jobs, but, but I think by then they were over. Like okay. I was fired as a non-paid dishwasher. That's pretty good. <laughs> That should go on the resume. Fired as a non-paid dish. Yeah, That's I, not I, easy I, to I, do. I had to work at a place where I was not only the bus boy, but I was the guy who, you know, 
wash the dishes and you couldn't keep up you know and I was supposed to to do this on a Saturday and a Sunday and if I did okay I got food but no pay and then if I did it okay they pay me and the guy came in and yelled at me on Sunday because I was way behind because I was and I said oh I'm so sorry he walked out of the thing I got on my bike and went home and that was it so you know but now, you weren't destined for day jobs. No, not destined for day jobs. I did work in a clothing store, and that was funny. But anyway, so we don't go into tomorrow. I better go forward to one of the jobs I had was there was a restaurant with performers called the Slate Brothers mm -hmm. on La Cienega. And I was working with Nino Tempo, who was very well known as part of the Nino Tempo and April Stevens Thing, brother and sister mm -hmm. and they recorded for Atlantic Records mm -hmm. and they were before there was blue-eyed soul they were they were kind of like that they were like a Louis Prima band but sounding black but they weren't black uh -huh. and they did a shuffle version of Deep Purple and it was a huge huge hit for them and then wow. they had a whole bunch of other ones mm -hmm. and so but the job that we had the Slate Brothers was more um, varied and they would have all these amazing people they became big stars but they were not big stars at the time, people wow. like like Jack Jones and wow. Don Rickles, wow. and I'll never forget Don Rickles because when we rehearsed, he said, "Now, kid," he said, "When I get to this line, I'm going to close the lid on the piano. If your hands are in the piano, not my problem." <laughs> and you know, and it, it one night was dangerously close. <laughs> but Nino mm -hmm. was best friends with Phil Spector, and Phil Spector was not anybody I had any knowledge of really. Mm -hmm. And he said at one point, he said, um, I think Phil Spector would really like you. And I said, who's that? And he explained to me who he was. He said, I'm gonna recommend you. He used two or three keyboard players on his dates. So now the, I have to back up. Before that happened, and I got a call to work with Phil Spector, which was the first thing I got to do in pop music. Wow. I had, um, I had met through my friend Pearl Kaufman, who was Igor Stravinsky's pianist, and she was a film pianist, and she introduced me to Lalo Schifrin at one of his sessions. And I met him, and Lalo Schifrin recommended me to Paul Horn, who was a notable jazz musician. And Paul called me to audition to be in his band, and to make this not so long, I, I, I got, was hired. But the first job that he did was he had signed a four-record deal with RCA, mm -hmm. and he had commissioned Lalo Schifrin to write a serious jazz liturgical work called Jazz Suite on the Mass Texts. So this was four, four soloists, uh, a chorus, the Paul Horn Quintet, and a mixed ensemble of brass percussion and uh, woodwinds. And Al Schmidt, who's a legendary engineer, mm -hmm. uh, he was the producer and the engineer on the record. It came out, it was the very first recording I had ever done with the greatest musicians in Los Angeles. How old are you? I'm, let's see, 67, I'm 26, something like that. Mm -hmm. And the record won two Grammys. I mean, wow. who could ask for that to be the first thing you wow. get to do, right? Now, so that's stage right or stage left. And mm -hmm. now I go to do a Phil Spector date at Gold Star, you know, with uh, the regular people and the wall of sound and the whole thing. And I have no idea what it is. But the keyboard players all play pretty much the same thing. You know, the right hand goes D, 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 D. And the left hand goes ding. So even I could get that, even though my time was a little edgy because I was a jazz guy. So I had to work on that a little bit. Uh -huh. You know, I'm working with Hal Blaine and all of these amazing people. You know, and um, so the thing that was interesting about that is they liked me enough that I got another call to work with them at some point. 
And I thought, we got to the fate of a song. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, you know, everybody's doing this and they're doing this. And we get to the end and it's like a four bar fade. And the horns are playing a figure like do 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 or something, you know, mm -hmm. or da, da da something. And then the next two bars would be empty. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what would it be like if the piano just goes up and plays a, a, a repetitive fill, you know, like do 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 or something? So I just thought, you know, nothing ventured, nothing whatever. So I played it, and after the thing was over, there's silence, and Phil Spector says, which keyboard played that high shit at the end? And I thought, okay, I can't duck out, right? I gotta say I did it, and I'll never be back. And I said, well, Phil, I, it was me. I just thought, he says, it was great. Wow. And then I became kind of a regular wow. guy. I got to work with him. You know, those are kind of just interesting stories. Like I, one of the records I worked on that made amazing amount of uh, interest was Frank Zappa's Lumpy Gravy. And I got called because some established pianist had walked out the night before and said the music was unplayable. And some people had recommended me to go, and this guy, Sid Sharp, who's a very major contractor, he was like the concertmaster on so many string sessions for so many pop records. Mm -hmm. He kind of had the, the, the whole hold on that, you know. And he called me and he says, uh, I'm gonna describe the situation. You may not feel comfortable doing it. He told me what was going on and I, I was thinking, first of all, any job I want any job you know I've got to make a living and I thought you know what if one of the most famous pianists said it was unplayable and I say the same thing I'm only validating him so I don't really have anything to lose uh -huh. and if I can play it then it's a good good thing you know and it wasn't so unplayable I think it was just something the guy didn't like that's well Zappa was so I saw Zappa at Carnegie Hall with a full orchestra he was very jazz Zappa was very jazz in his fashion I mean, he was so out there, but um, what was what was that experience like for you, working with him? Exhilarating. I loved it. I loved the music. I loved the challenge. I loved being there. I mean, being there, just, God, here I am. I mean, you know, it's the big time. I'm, I'm, I'm doing what everybody might want to do, you know. And and then as it got went on, what was so striking for me was that I seemed to be a generation that had a little bit more of a diverse kind of uh, opportunity than the people before me because of my background and my interest in various music. So every time something came up that was new, I seemed to find my way. And then I would start thinking, oh, I like this. And then I'd become more familiar. And so it sounds like it was mostly through referrals of people who'd heard you play and would turn you on to something else or talk about you to someone else. Is that how the work was happening? I think, yeah, mostly someone would say, oh, we, we, we can't get our regular guy. Anybody else, you have any other name? And so a composer might say to another composer mm -hmm. or a contractor, if they start working with you, or musicians with other keyboard players. I got a lot of work from other keyboard players. Absolutely. There was a guitar player, Tommy Tedesco, who was legendary, mm -hmm. and he really was helpful to me. That's and wonderful. he never, ever put it in my face. It was just like he did, he was one of those people. And have you done that for other musicians along the way? I have, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's hard for me to take, I don't like to, you know, yeah. promote myself that way. But yes, I love helping talent. Mm -hmm. And so, and your, your, your history is so diverse, from NSYNC to Barbara Streisand to John, to John Lennon to John Denver. I mean, just, is there anything that you did without naming names and getting yourself in was there anything you didn't like doing that you did just for the money? Did you ever do that just for the money? Um, no, for a very unusual reason. Okay. It's like when you're in the act of doing it, there's no room for that. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's like an actor getting a movie and maybe they think it's a big hit, but they hate the script. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to be any good, you can't go there. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, um, I'm here now. I'm with you and with all the people out there, and I've never actually done this before, you know? Really? Like, no, nice. not, not exactly like this. And so, <laughs> hey, here we are. Let's just do this, you know? I don't know what you're going to ask me next. I don't either. Good. We're just, we're we're here now. Pete, anybody out there have any questions for Mike? I want to encourage you guys, if you do have questions, to ask them because Pete will... Uh... Yes. Let's go, Pete. When you're playing by yourself, what are you feeling? Ooh. Um, different Ooh. things at different times, I think, is the most un- uninteresting correct answer. Um I'll, I'll, I'll sit down at the piano and it could be that I, I say I'm going to work on technique, you know, which is not something I really like to do in a direct way. So I'll find something musical to do with the technique and then my mind might wander and I'll go to something else. Or if I'm at the piano working on something because I'm preparing something and there's a deadline, like working on a piece that requires a lot of preparation, then I, I'm very focused. And... Um, I've discovered something that's really interesting, and my girlfriend Deborah pointed this out to me, is that um, I'll get a piece of music someone will send me that is challenging, and so mm-hmm. I'm looking at a PDF of it on the computer, and I'm looking at the music, and I'm sitting at my desk, and I'm just playing like this, and thinking about fingerings, and thinking about how it sounds without hearing the piano. So I'm really hearing it in my head, and so then when I go to the piano, I've already got an idea of what what my spin is on it or hmm. where I'm going with it and um, that's something that's relatively new for me and it's I, I really like it you know what Mike this is screaming to me that you have to play something now I think you need to play something I only know one song yeah <laughs> well I think you have to play that one then okay but I think we need to Pete I, I hate to like get you up out of your chair and make you get Pete while Mike is making his way to the piano tell us what you're doing this week Pete's doing something very exciting oh cool I'm doing something exciting alright so I move so, like so, now so, nope, so right here. he's, oh, okay, oh, wait, here he's gonna go. tell us first this is Pete George everybody hey <laughs> so uh, the first film I worked in was The Shawshank Redemption oh okay and we're having the 25th anniversary in Ohio uh, next week where we filmed it uh, there's going to be, I guess they say maybe 30,000 people, and a lot of the stars are going to be there. So I'm going to be on the two stars. stars. I'm going to be on two actors' panels doing Q and A's for the fans. Oh, oh congratulations! He so, had the, the joy of standing next to Tim Robbins when they were all naked in the shower. Yeah, I was naked. Really? Yeah. yeah. Did you have a selfie? Made me union. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's called sex. <laughs> anyway, ah, hey. Ah, all <laughs> right. Thomas Newman wrote a incredible score for that movie. Love his amazing. work. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. right? The best. Oh yeah, he's amazing. Yeah. I hope he's there. Alright. So All that's right. where I'm going to be. So you can look for Pete there. And uh, by the way, uh, Laugh Factory shows were phenomenal last week in Rio. Yay. So. Yay. We missed you though, Pete. You're not allowed to do that. Well, yeah. You can get to work. Alright, so now you have to go work because you have All to go right. spin can the camera I, so I that I Mike's going to... say something about this yes. before I move? Please do. Okay. So, you didn't talk about the first piece that you played. You're right. Okay, so in brief, the first piece I titled, after having written it, Rural State of Mind. Hmm. And it was born out of the fact that there's some folky kind of country, kind of Americana elements in it. Mm -hmm. And like uh, often when I write something, I write it so that when when it becomes a vehicle for improvisation, you can kind of go in different directions with it. Mm -hmm. So it allows me, Mm -hmm. as you might recall, that sometimes I get kind of gospel-y, and sometimes I get kind of classical and kind of like, Copeland or Americana music and it just gives me the freedom and when I sat down to play I wasn't playing the song 
I was improvising. Oh wow! So all of that, even though it's very melodic, it was uh -huh. in the moment. And then when you hear ba da 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 da, -da, -da I can't sing, uh, <laughs> but anyway, that was the song. And uh, wow! Yeah, but any uh, what I want to say is that um, the, thi the the thing that I guess I was thinking about was I'm not from a rural place, so I'm in a rural state of mind being a non-rural person. So I so that it allows for the song to have a certain kind of sophistication. I like that. It's a hybrid. I like that, and a hybrid, a hybrid, a musical hybrid. I like it. I also want to say that when I saw Mike in concert last week, he played an incredible array of other composers' works and and jazz greats. But one of my favorite songs, maybe my favorite song of the night, was yours, was Mandela, which was just absolutely brilliant. I don't know what you're going to play now. So but, amazing um, that you mention that. Is that what you're going to play now? Because I'm not going to play. Oh. <laughs> That, that is what I would like to play. I would you love know, you very, to play that. very unusual, wonderful thing that happened. I, I, with all the crazy stuff going on in the world, mm -hmm. I just wanted to write something that was spiritually uplifting. That my, Originally, I was thinking it should have African elements and Brazilian elements and kind of a little bit. There was a, there was a, grant, a band with Joe Zamanol and Wayne Shorter called Weather Report. Oh, yes. And it had a big hit. Oh, so you like that. That's I, 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 did, I did like Weather Report. Yeah. And Birdland was this big uplifting mm -hmm. thing. And I thought it should have some of that built into it. This, mm -hmm. And then after I got it, and I wrote, I wrote it in two sections, I can say that. And I'm going to probably start by playing something that's just in the moment and I'll get to the melody. And you'll hear that um, the first part is very beautiful. And the second part has kind of some dissonance and some conflict. And that, that was to express the negative side of what goes on mm -hmm. that prevents peace, you know, and that we need to come to terms and have resolution. And so when I was thinking of a title, uh, I thought of Nelson Mandela. Mm -hmm. Well, play it loud and play it proud because we could use some peace about now. Yeah, we sure could. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Mike's going to go play, and he's going to, while he's going over there, Pete's going to turn the camera around, and I'm just going to sit here and, and do, uh, do some listening. So smooth, Pete, on the, on the turn of the camera. You're doing so good. Yeah, some graph, graphite in here. <laughs> <laughs>
have you at the piano and we would talked about maybe having Deborah Pearl come over and sing a song with you. Would this be an okay time to do it? Yes. Let's awesome. do it. Deborah. Right. So this is Deborah Pearl. And for those of you who don't know, Deborah uh, is a is, 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 is as well as a musician and a singer. She Hello. is a writer. And Deborah wrote a piece called Getting Ed Laid that Ed Asner and Deborah performed at Women Who Write. Yes, that's right. We did. And it went on to become a short film and win awards. Yes, it, it was that was a great thank you. Thank you again. For My pleasure. Thing and Cindy Beagle and that was And I love you, Cindy Beagle. Thank yes. you for these I introductions. Love you too, Cindy Beagle. Am I on camera? I can't this way? He's gonna get. Um, okay. Pete's gonna tell What's you what to. Name? We need the top of Deborah's know. head. I don't know. Pete. That's my face. Miss, I don't know. Yeah. Wait. Hang on. We just. We got it. We got no, it. Deborah's. Oh yeah, you got it oh, now. Oh, this delay. That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. There you go.
because that was amazing. Mike Lang, Deborah Pearl, wow, that was so wonderful. Thank you. That was so wonderful. And by the way, your friend Snuffy Walden says hi. Oh, hi, Sam. So, so Mike came and we need some guitar. Came to the living room and, and watched Snuffy play with Teresa James and, and, and Terry Wilson and, and uh, Leslie Smith, and they were amazing. And Adam Chester is watching also. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah, so the whole, hi, Adam. The Homish book you is rock. here. <laughs> he does, doesn't he? He does. He was wonderful. That was amazing. So. Hmm. I don't even the passion uh the passion in that piece that that um when you got to that very intense part um was very evocative. It's it's um like you need to do something political with that, I think, somehow. You need be. to take it and adopt it and use it. Yeah. Very evocative emotion. Um okay, so let's get back. So you've played okay, so Recording came before film. Did they come together? What? What? How did that happen for you? I'll have to think. I would say, well, the first two record dates, I explained. Right. And I think. Um, how did you get into the movies? I think Lalo Schifrin. He opened the chest because he hired me to do my very first uh, television film. Well, which was? I don't know. Who knows? Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, he hired me to do my very first motion picture. Which one, you, you know? No, no. I, I don't remember. But <laughs> you did he, a lot. But, but 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 the point for me was mm -hmm. that he 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 just embraced me, you know, and he hired hired me, started hiring me on a regular basis. He was maybe the first person, mm -hmm. and also recommended me to other people, and and somehow. At the time, the way the keyboard wo world was, that people got known for doing specific things. You know, it's just like composers getting known. This guy writes comedy, therefore he can't write a drama, mm -hmm. can't write a western. It, it's very superficial and and inappropriately inaccurate, mm -hmm. but it's the, it's the way it works. So, you know? what followed you? What was your title? What was your thing? Well, this was the thing that was so so weird. I'd get a call and I'd show up, and very often in those days there'd be more than one keyboard player. Mm -hmm. One guy might play harpsichord or celeste or organs and mm -hmm. then eventually electronic keyboards, but they hadn't really started to happen yet. Right. And um, so I'd show up and there'd be two keyboard players and the contractor would say, you're the jazz guy and he's the legit guy. And I'd say, okay, great. And then I would go somewhere else and for some reason the referral came from a different kind of, mm -hmm. you know, thing. And the guy would say, you're the legit guy. You play all the classical stuff. And he's the jazz guy. And I'd say, okay. And somehow, I think, over a period of time, somebody started to think, oh, this guy actually can do more than one thing. Ah! You know, and that, I mean, there were people before me who were very versatile, mm -hmm. but I was of a new generation mm -hmm. with a different kind of um, spin on things, I guess. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, again, it wasn't me saying, hey, I do this. It was me saying, what do you want me to do? Somebody just asked, by the way, did you ever do Broadway? Did you ever play on Broadway? I never have played on Broadway. I play Broadway shows that have been recorded here, and oh. I've done Broadway. I did Barbara Streisand's Barbara. Okay, let's talk about else. Barbara for a second. Okay. So, what was that experience like? I love working with her. Rosalind Kind, her sister, just sang in my living room a couple of months last month. 
fantastic. She's an amazing singer also. I, I know that. Yeah, yes. Okay, so so Barbara, easy to work with? D difficult For me, easy, because what I saw, and it's not so um, specific with her, but it's specific with a lot of stars. Mm -hmm. I saw a similarity in a way with Bette Midler. Some stars who can be very temperamental. Mm -hmm. The thing that really rubs them the wrong way is when somebody is trying to um, impress them and give them a spin on stuff. They, they have a lot of uh, pressure, and they need people who make them feel secure and make them feel like they're not going to bullshit them and uh -huh. give them the real thing. Uh -huh. And so they look for those people who are um, comfort zones. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not a bullshit artist. I just don't, you know, if I could be, maybe I'd have another trick up my sleeve. But I, I just reel with people. I just think it's the best way to be. It's the only way I know how to be. So if somebody asks me a question, I try and be diplomatic, mm -hmm. but I, I try and give them something that's useful so that they feel like I can count on this person. He's there for me. You know, and once they feel that, you could play terribly and still, you know, kind of Which think, is something you've never done. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Not true, but thank you. So would you have like a have a moment with her? I mean Yeah, I, there's one story that's really a fun story, so I'll tell it. Uh, I met and started to work with Arif Martin, who's a wonderful, legendary record producer. Mm -hmm. And he has, had a, did you ever know him back I in New York? Know. No. Mm -mm. He produced so many great people, the Bee Gees and Aretha Franklin mm -hmm. and all of these people. And uh, and he came from Turkey and he was an arranger, a jazz arranger. And all of a sudden, uh, um, <clears throat> Arif Martin, uh, just, just wait a minute, now I'm getting confused. Who did I say that I was working with? Arif? Arif. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, Ahmed Erdogan of Atlantic mm -hmm. hired Arif, mm -hmm. and, and he became a big deal at Atlantic because he worked on all these set records, and he became an executive there. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, at some point I got connected with him, and there was a Broadway singer named Michael, oh God, and I did arrangements for Arif. Big star on Broadway. I think it's from England. This is where my brain goes. That's okay, because mine's yeah, right anyway, there with you. Anyway, that was someone I worked with more than once with the Reef. So, mm -hmm. so I'm at home. I get a phone call, and and, and he, you know, he was very large and are larger than life, you know. So, he, so he calls up, and I answer the phone. I said, "Hello, Mike." Yes, it's a Reef. So I couldn't resist. I said, "A Reef who?" <laughs> <laughs> And he said, Arif Martin, and I just went right past him. And I said, hi, what's going on? It's great to hear from you. He said, I'm producing Barbara Streisand. And, and, and people are very nervous when they get their first opportunity. I had that, I worked on a date with Johnny Mandel, who's one of the greatest composer arrangers. And I walked in and he, he asked me to come up to the, to the podium and, and, he, and he said, I've never worked with her before. And, and John is a very strong guy in his own way, and a really brilliant musician. Mm -hmm. I said, it's gonna be great, just, you know, so, so anyway, with the reef, he called me, he says, Mike, I need a favor from you. And I said, okay, what? He says, I need you to come with me to Barbara's house, and I need you to help me run the material. We're going to be picking songs and stuff. And and, and, and uh, it would really be, I'll pay you whatever you normally get to do records or whatever you need, but I really need you to be there. Would you do this for me? And I said, you know, Reef, I'm honored, but I said, I'm the wrong guy for that job because... Oh. You need somebody who's experienced in rehearsing singers and somebody who can transpose it immediately. They don't want to do it in one key, they want to do it in another. Or, they, you know, it, somebody who's just in that world. Uh -huh. I, I show up when the music is ready to be recorded, when all of that's already. So I'm not used to doing I used to do some of it, but I haven't done it in years. I would be completely mm -hmm. wrong. And he said, I don't want you for that. I want you for your creative, conceptual. Uh, uh, 
ideas about how the piano part should be, and maybe I'll have you arrange some of the rhythm tracks. He said, I need you for Mike Lang. I don't need you for that other stuff. Wow. And he says, please, and then he's, and I still was, got, and then he said, please do this for me. And so I said, okay. <laughs> and he said, oh, well, you pick me up in my hotel. So I picked him up at the hotel, and we're driving up the coast to her house in Malibu. And I'm thinking, I don't want to do this. I really don't want to do this. What can I do now? I'm trapped. You know, and, and and I have a really nice relationship with her, and it's all gonna kind of go left. You know? Wait, how did you have a relationship with her already? I've worked on records with her as a pianist. Okay, so you already had a rapport. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, notably, I did. Um, um, oh god, now I can't even think of it. Marvin Hamlisch's big song. It was a big hit. The way we were. Thank you. You're I welcome. did the recording of that, not the wow. soundtrack, but uh -huh. the record of it with Marty mm. Page, and that was a big credit for me and a Huge. big record. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, so and, and other things, some films and other things. So anyway, so we're going up, and I'm thinking, what can I do to like make this fly? And I said to Ariva, uh, Ariva, I just want to give you a heads up. And he said, what is it? I said, well, if she asks me to do something that requires a little bit of preparation, I'm going to ask her if she has any phone calls to return. <laughs> and he looked at me in absolute horror. He said, really? I said, look, don't worry. I, you know, I won't do it if it's inappropriate. But you know, so we get there, and the <laughs> cast of characters is Barbara. Arif, me, her manager, Marty Ehrlichman, and her female assistant, her main person mm -hmm. to do stuff. And so, sure enough, we're doing this song and we're into it. And anytime a singer asks you what key we're in, that's, that's like a snake pit. Because they just automatically have these um, subjective ideas about what keys are right, what keys aren't right. It doesn't even have to do with the vocal range of the song. It gets into a lot of uh, irrational stuff mm -hmm. sometimes. Mm -hmm. So as soon as they say that, you know it could be whatever. So she said, what key are we in? And I said, we're in C. She says, oh, let's try it in E flat. Well, that's not, that's not like C to D. It's right, like, right. And I thought, okay, here we are. So I turned to her and I said, Barbara, I want to ask you a question. She said, what is it? I said, do you have any phone calls to return? <laughs> and she looked at me, and you know, she's really smart. She knew I was throwing her a curveball. She says, Mike, what is this about? And I said, well, you know, we kind of have a nice thing going on the song, the feel, and I want to write out the chords so that when we go to E flat, I'm not fumbling around and, and distracting you. I want to be able to keep going where we're going to get to where you need to get to so that you know whether you want to record this song or not. She turns around and she says, Lisa, do I have any phone calls to return? I mean, it's just like that. She says, yes, Mr. Streisand, you do. And, and and they walk out of the room and Marty Earl looks at me and goes like this. It gives me the wow. you know, like I, And so I run out the stuff and, and she came back and we kept going. And did you end up doing it in E-flat? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I don't remember. I don't know. I mean, because I, I, I was just wondering if she was testing you or doing what no, you she, said. No, she, no, she, she wanted really to find wanted a key that she was comfortable. No, okay. that was totally mm -hmm. legit. No, and that's the other thing I was, I was saying. It's like, uh, if you give people the right answer, I mean, mm -hmm. the real answer, mm -hmm. the answer that makes them feel like they're on solid ground, that that's really the most important thing. How about on film, working on films? Like, you you did so many films with Henry Mancini and with Hans, Hans Zimmer, who was on Facebook before, which he was liked so us. exciting. Yeah, I love Hans Zimmer. I adore oh. Hans Zimmer. He so what's that experience the, like? It's incomparable. He's mm -hmm. just... Um, he knows how to make people feel good. Mm -hmm. That is, it's kind of the same subject. Mm -hmm. How do you get the most out of the people you have? He's one of the best casting directors in the history of anything. Wow. I mean, if he wanted to produce films, he'd be brilliant at it. 
You know? Wow. He is a visionary, mm -hmm. and he sees the big picture, mm -hmm. and he knows. He comes to his own conclusions, but 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 they work, and they re they 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 um, reaffirm for him, you know, that he's on the right path. I mean, I can't speak for him. He, I'm sure mm -hmm. he's got stories that you know where it wasn't so great for him. Mm -hmm. That you know, because we all the more you try, the more you risk, and all that. But he. He sees the big picture as very few people, and he's changed the whole business mm -hmm. with the way he has done what he's done. But but he done with the, on the pictures I did with him. Some of them um, afforded me the opportunity to be somewhat creative and stuff like that. Pick pick one, a favorite. Okay, here's a favorite story, and now I forgot the name of the the title of the movie. Oh, this is so bad. You're making me feel so much better about myself. I can't remember anything, and it makes me crazy. I really want to remember the name of this okay. movie, and it was. A I have your IMDb somewhere here. Oh, okay. Well, we can. Yeah, if you do his IMDb, I'll find it. It's about 15 years old. It was with Jack Nicholson, oh. and, there, and there was a, uh, um, something about the right stuff. Is it no? No, the right you, stuff was right, the, the, yeah, the yeah, no, I don't. astronaut okay, film. Okay, no, we'll find we'll it. It's worth it. The story was great. All right, so you tell the story, and I'll find the name of it. In the oh, you can't tell the story without the name of the... Well, uh, it'll help, because then I'll remember okay. a little bit of what this Okay, so on. we're going to IMDb. Yep. Those of you out there following yeah, along at home. Knows it. All right, so <laughs> we want to find him as a composer, not music department. Oh, cl click that, it'll collapse. Music department. Okay, now go to composer. Okay, now let's go back Oh, there's to only 203 credits. Yeah, all right, stop. <laughs> okay. We're, in, we're very recent. This is 2015. It's got to be Pat. Older, right? I think so. Yeah. Okay, stop for a minute. Um, Jack Nicholson has to be older than 2011, no? Yeah, maybe. Keep yeah. going. Oh, I'm sorry. This is so Frost, boring. Nixon, still. Yeah, everybody at home. The Da Vinci Code is still too recent, it feels like. Keep going. Uh, no. Something's got to give. Was it no. something got to give? No. That's Jack Nicholson. No. Okay. You know what? If we go to Jack that Nicholson, right. we'll find it faster. The right. Oh God. All right. Let me just tell the story. Okay, it tell doesn't matter. Maybe it'll come to you. I'm going to keep so, looking. So, yeah. so anyway, Jack Nicholson is this kind of crazy, kooky guy, mm -hmm. and um, and he play his character plays the piano. Okay. And um, so I got That's a call it, from yeah. Hans Zimmer, and he mm -hmm. said. Um, I need you to help me with something. Mm -hmm. I, I, I said, what is it? He said, well, Jack Nicholson and, uh, oh God, now I can't remember the director's name. No! Not, no, we got to find this. <laughs> oh, shoot. Go, go to Jack Nicholson. All right, Nicholson. I'm going to Jack Nicholson. Yes, yeah. Jack Very Nicholson's famous. got a lot of films too, but not as many as Hans Very Zimmer. Very fam famous. Okay. Uh, yeah, we'll find him toward the end then, because, yeah. Sorry, everybody on Facebook. Okay. Keep, this is keep, live. Keep, keep talking so that... Uh, well, Okay, there he is. All right, we'll find this. Oh, no. See, now it's going to his picture. Shouldn't I don't want do to do no, that. No, All right, no. here we go. Yeah, there you go. Okay, okay. So filmography. All right, slow down. As good as it gets. It's before. That's it. Oh, it's as good as it gets. Yeah. Okay. All right, so click on that. Okay. And the director is, drum roll. James, James O. Brooks. James oh, Brooks. Hello. Jim Brooks, for those who call yes. him Jim Brooks. Which mm -hmm. But anyway, so... There's a meeting at Jack Nicholson's house with Hans Zimmer and James Brooks. Mm -hmm. oh. That's us looking over at the computer. Oh, okay. It's a little dark. All right, so yeah. I need to be, hi. So, 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 so uh, Hans says to me, we're trying to pick a 
a song for Jack to play at the piano, and the three of us are coming from completely different places about what we think it should be. Mm -hmm. And I want you to come to this meeting because you're such a versatile musician, and so somebody will describe what the music style should be, and then I'd like you to go to the piano and try and give us a sense of what that sounds like. Okay. So I said, well, okay, I don't know. <laughs> you he sound said, Mike, very happy you have about to, that. Mike, you know, it'll be great, don't worry. I said, uh -huh. okay, so I get there, and um, Hans is there, and James Brooks is there, and they're just doing small talk, and Jack Nicholson kind of makes an entrance, and he comes into this room, and he's holding a record, a, a, an LP, mm -hmm. of Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington. And I know the record because I have all the Duke Ellington records. So, of course you do. so I knew this record. Mm -hmm. So and, and, and the thing that he said was it was the most um, uh, brilliant thing that anybody said that whole night. He said, the reason I like the style of this record is that the pianist, Duke Ellington, is playing very simply and very kind of easy for, for me to get with the hands. Uh -huh. And he said, my hands are not going to be the star of this scene. My face and my expressions are going to be my what's going to make this and I need to put all my energy into that uh -huh. so I want this to be kind of you know right in the pocket of all this other stuff that I'm doing mm -hmm. and I love the, the it's catchy and it's cool and it feels like the character to me and all that and, and that was for me that was the best statement any of them made but that was okay so now um, um, James Brooks says you know there's a guy who plays upright piano at the Third Street Mall in Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. And he plays this kind of crazy, neurotic, fast stride piano. And he looks real paranoid. And he's got a cup <laughs> jar where people leave tips. And I'd seen this guy. I'd been there and I'd seen him. So I knew what, what all that was. And I thought, that seems distracting. But I didn't say anything. And then Hans said something really unusual. He said, I think it should be cooler and more abstract. Kind of like Thelonious Monk, you know, who was a very kind of edgy jazz pianist. And so I was cool to go to the piano and, and do all this stuff. And then they continued to talk, and it wasn't coming to a common place. I was going to say, they're all completely telling you something else. Yeah, exactly. And they didn't really find a way to, to bring it together to resolve that. Mm -hmm. So Hans, being Hans, he said, look, we don't need to talk about this. Mike and I are going to write the piece, and it's going to be great. And I'm thinking, oh boy, I get to write with Hans Zimmer. You know, it's going nice. to be great. So... Um, so we, we walked out and I said, Hans, really? That's really exciting. He said, yeah, I'll be in touch. Okay, so now I don't get that phone call, but I get a phone call from somebody and saying, uh, they want you to come to a stage where they're shooting mm -hmm. a movie and they're going to shoot this scene. Mm -hmm. So presumably they have the music uh, or God knows what. I didn't know. And they said, we need you to be at, at, at Fox on the stage or wherever at 8 o'clock in the morning on such and such. And I said... Um, I, I can't be there until 10 o'clock. I really had something I couldn't move, medical thing. And so they said, well, that's okay. We'll cover for you. So I get there at 10 o'clock. And this is a funny story. So there's a guy sitting at the piano mm -hmm. filling in for me. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I get to meet him. And I say, who are you? And he says, well, I'm, I'm Hans's driver. And I said, yeah, but you're playing the piano. He says, well, I'm really a composer. Mm -hmm. And I want to break in. And so I have this job for Hans right now. And... Um, so he would, that was what he was doing, wow. hopeful, hopeful to be a, a composer mm -hmm. and work with Hans and all that. It was cool. So anyway, I sit down, and there's a scene in the movie where there's this dog that's mm -hmm. a pet that belongs to this homosexual guy. The dog is a big guy. part of the... Well, he... he, he Frank Kinnear's dog. He, 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 yeah, mm -hmm. he urinates. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're feeding the dog water, 
For six hours, I sit there while I'm shooting all the scenes of the dog urinating. I mean, just, you can't make this stuff up. You know, and then I get to the piano, and it's the brighter side of life, which was, um, oh, who's the English group? I oh, can't. don't Monty start. Now, yeah, Monty Python. What is it? Monty Python. Right, and Art Garfunkel, I think, had done a record of it. He did? Yeah, I think so. So, so, so anyway, um, so there it is. And I haven't really played through it, but it's it's not complicated. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and and so I'm waiting to get my marching orders, and all three of them are there. And it's like, remember Duke Ellington? Remember the guy on 3rd Street? Remember Thelonious Monk? And I said, okay. I said, look, let me just say one thing. I'm going to play something. I have no idea what I'm going to play. I'm going to try and put this all together, but it's not an intellectual thing. It's just got to happen. Wow. And so be prepared to not like what I'm going to play, but you'll guide me to get common ground and I'll take everything in that you give me and you know we'll try and get there so I played one tape and I quit and I'm sitting there and nobody's saying anything I'm serious nobody, nobody's saying anything and I finally looked at them and I said how was it they all go like this and I go wow oh. isn't that odd I mean isn't that kind of cool that's a great story it's like you can't, yeah it's a weird story I mean where did you get a somehow you managed experience? to assimilate those three very different well either I did or it didn't matter you know it's like they like mm. what they heard and, and, and that's you know again it's a, the, the thing that has nothing to do with intellectual stuff it's like it's just got to feel right for the character and feel right for and I didn't know a lot but I knew he was kind of kooky and I knew it had to be a little bit zany and it had to have a heart and you know those kind of things mm -hmm. I didn't think that I'm thinking it now mm -hmm. you know I'm thinking back like what what was the what would what did I do that I didn't think about but I was just feeling what to play I love that yeah um how about playing with with Henry Mancini Henry was wonderful um he was um he loved musicians and he made musicians feel really great. And my relationship had, it was very professional, but it was very heartfelt, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, and I remember my last phone call with him was when he had pancreatic cancer and it wasn't, it wasn't going well. And I just called, called him that year. And uh, he was like, man, I'm on a, I'm on a, it's like I'm on a train and it's going to a terrible place. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I said, God, I really feel for you. I don't know if there's anything I can do or be, but. He said, no, let's not talk about me. Let's talk about you. And he wanted to talk about my talent oh. and my abilities and how uh, just he just wanted to make me feel motivated to go on with my own life. I can't tell you what a priceless phone call it was. Just, mm. you know, and that that probably says more than anything. I mean, there were some other stories that were fun with him. Um, there was one story where um, I was, I went through a whole period where I was playing a lot of synthesizers. And it was very technical, and the technology was new, mm. and the studios had trouble adjusting and uh, adapting to it. Mm -hmm. And composers uh, didn't do much of this stuff themselves. They really were the last people to jump on board. So the keyboard players were doing it, and we mm. would bring these large MIDI-equipped studios. Mm -hmm. You know, they were really studios that were moving from studio to studio. When they had, we had Carnage people set it up, it was all integrated and worked on. It was a big commitment. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that happened is, um, there's a, 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 a thing called sequencing, which composers do, where they do things that are fast and automated, and they're generated by computers. And so when you hear like an action cue in a movie, and you hear something going, it's not playable, you know? So uh, basically, it's input at a slower tempo, or it's input just by typing it in, mm -hmm. and then it has that. And so that becomes an element in the music. Well, in the early days, 
we would have the music, that music would be written out and we would have to input it into a sequencer mm -hmm. and, and, and have it triggered by a click track originally and that would sync it to the film in the right tempo and all of this. But the studio click lines weren't clean enough to keep the sequencer from tripping. So I'll go better, 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 you know. And so basically, I'm sitting there. I can't do anything. It's up to the studio to get this together, and it's costly. It was a big orchestra, and uh, I think Henry looked at me and saw my face losing its color, you know. And and he could be very Italian sometimes. He said, "Hey, Mike," and I said, "Yeah, well, what is it, Hank?" He says, "Don't you hate it when shit like this happens?" <laughs> and it just was like his way of telling me we'll get through this and, and not only was it his way of telling me that but the whole whole orchestra cracked up you know because he, he's a human being who cared and so were there were there those that were not that way that did you play for those that... we had a lot of variety mm -hmm. yeah because I'm sure some were there were some that really gracious. didn't understand musicians who wrote mm -hmm. music it wasn't even that musical but they, they it was like um, mm -hmm. They didn't, I th what I like to say is that people who are not comfortable with other people, it's generally they're not comfortable with themselves, you know? It's, Absolutely. Like, it's like it's not a lot you can do except try and um, not get in their way and you know, let them get it done. What was it like playing with Aretha? That was an interesting story. Um, we were doing a ballad, mm -hmm. and uh, it was a big hit actually, and now of course I can't remember the name of it. Um, <laughs> Oh, I and, feel so uh, much. God, I'm forgetting everything. But I, you know, the thing that was so strange for me was that we're playing this really pretty ballad, R&B ballad, but mm -hmm. sweet kind of pop, mm -hmm. and it's a four-piece rhythm section, really great rhythm section. I know Freddie Washington played bass, and I think it was Paul Jackson or Ray Parker and James Gadson mm -hmm. or Ed Green. I mean, just really great mm -hmm. R&B players. And it's piano based, and Aretha's not singing; she's she's in the booth, and. Uh, and I thought, God, I, I don't know what I'm doing because I don't have a reference to the song and the mm -hmm. lyric. And, and so we played a, a take and we went in the booth, you know. And I don't know what got into me because she's a big deal. You know, she's going to be really intimidating. Mm -hmm. And she can be tough. That's why, that's why she came to mind, yeah. Yeah. So I just went up to her and even asked the producer, I said, can I ask you a question? And she said, sure. I said, I, I got to tell you something. I am so thrilled to be here, but I, I'm, I'm really nervous. You're a great piano player yourself. And here I am, and I said, I really want to key off the song, but, you know, we don't hear it. I said, would you be comfortable singing it with us? And she said, sure. And when she came out in the studio, everything changed. Wow. And when she sang, we, we became alive. Not that I was such a genius. It was something I needed and wanted, and and and, uh, and we got it, and uh, and it was a really successful record, which of wow. course I can't remember the name of. I and then how about how up. about um, uh, playing with Marvin Gaye? That was <laughs> not what it sounds like. Oh, he wasn't there. Okay. So this was an experiment that Motown did, mm -hmm. and we did four songs. And it was a really weird instrumentation. It was like, I think I played, I played electric piano. I think it was Wurlitzer, mm -hmm. it might have been Fender Rhodes. And there was a steel guitar, mm -hmm. and there was bass, I think, and percussion. Mm -hmm. And that was it, no, no drums and no, you know, and, and it was all kind of moody, atmospheric That sounds like songs. Marvin. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it was really very different. You know, oh. it, was, I mean, it was like him trying to do a different kind of artistic thing. And the instrumentation was odd. And again, we didn't hear the songs. And as I recall, 
I think they were released posthumously. I'm not really sure. I don't even know if I've heard the finished product. I, because I think, now that I you think, said that, I, I'm thinking of Marvin Gaye stuff, and it seems like he always played with percussion as opposed to drums. When the songs that I'm hearing in my head, the drum song, just there, yeah, on everything. Guess, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of percussion with, well, that, with yeah, Marvin Gaye. Yeah, there's both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how about how did you end up with In Sync? That was odd. <laughs> I mean, but it was so cool. And, and here's my ego really going stupid. So I get this call. I'm, dri- I'm driving there. I'm saying, hey, I can say I recorded with NSYNC. I can say I recorded with a, with a band that's not my age. It's youthful. And it's like, what, I wonder what they're going to have me do. Uh-huh. You know, I wonder if I'm going to be able to do it. You know, and it, it was a beautiful song. And it had a kind of written classical kind of part. So mm-hmm. they needed that kind of a guy who could play in a rhythm section context. And, you know, where the time is locked and it feels mm-hmm. good. And uh, and it was great. They were wonderful to work with. They're Justin, great. when he was just a boy. Yeah. I mean, he's an, an incredible performer. I agree. And I love what he does. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. He's amazing. Okay, and how? Let's see. You, there's how about John Lennon? What was that like? That's another long, funny story. Mm-hmm. So John Lennon um, did a record that was released as rock and roll, mm-hmm. and half of it was produced by Phil Spector. It was done here. The other half was done in New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, so being part of Phil's group of people, I was involved in it. And but the, but the back story was that he had left Yoko and was with his secretary, Mai Pang. And who's that's, a friend who's a friend and who could very well be watching this show. Oh my gosh. Hi. <laughs> May. <laughs> May, sorry. So anyway, this was when he went to the Troubadour and there was this thing about, excuse me, sir, you have a cotex on your head? And he says, yes, ma'am, I have a cotex on my head. And he was with Nielsen or something. It got Mm -hmm. all written up. So all of this stuff was this crazy thing. Mm -hmm. And I heard all this secondhand, probably from Nino Tempo, and he was saying, because it was was so disorganized, Mm -hmm. but it was organized to be disorganized. Mm-hmm. So the band generally had two drums. Mm-hmm. It was Hal Blaine and Jim Keltner, mm-hmm. usually. Oh, was he amazing playing with you? Oh, I love him. Oh, my. We go all the way back to those days, too. He's, he's crazy. Oh, I know. Wow. Yeah, he's okay. very I, special. I didn't mean to interrupt. As was Mike Valerio. Can't leave Fantastic. him out. Yeah, great, great combination. Mm-hmm. All right, so, so anyway, the band would have two drums, mm-hmm. uh, two basses, I think, electric and upright, three guitars, two or three keyboards, percussion, and a four-piece horn section, and no music was written. We had a lyric sheet. Mm-hmm. So what happens is we'd start at 7 o'clock, and we would just basically go through it, and Lennon was playing acoustic guitar mm-hmm. and singing, and had a bottle of scotch or bourbon or something, and we would go through and write the chords as he went down. I mean, that was it was so primitive, it was so unnecessary, but Phil wanted to create this tension and kind of whatever to keep John's interest up so I was told Mm -hmm. so it would take two or three hours to get ready to rehearse and do a take and Phil would do take after take Mm -hmm. after take and he would never tell us why he was doing another take so it was more about preserving energy because you never knew you you couldn't say okay this is going to be the one I'm going to really you know you'd have to save it you know Mm -hmm. it's like you can't have an orgasm for four hours from now what Mm -hmm. are you going to do that's that's what the game was you know so but in this one particular there were two things that happened that was really funny one was on one of the sessions uh, Dr. John was one of the keyboard players Mm -hmm. Mac Remanek and I got to work with him on three different occasions and this I think this was the last one and he was so funny because he remembered me which was really nice and he's so sweet did you know him at all? I didn't know him personally no but I adored him yeah 
And so he said to me, after we've been there four or five hours, mm-hmm. he says, you know, Ma, I don't need to be here. I don't need to do this shit. <laughs> and I said, yeah, but I'm so happy you're here. I said, you make this so much easier for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I probably have to do it more than you have to do it. And he laughed, you know, and, and so that was one night. But then the night that was really remarkable was, it was about 11 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. And we had been doing this song. I think it was called Born to Be With You. It's an old, all these things were covers. They were old mm-hmm. rock and roll standards. And so Nielsen shows up. And they get this Zach idea. might be watching his son. Hi, okay. Zach. Hi. <laughs> so, so they get this idea that they're going to do a duet. Uh, Phil kind of had already choreographed mm-hmm. that this was going to happen. So as soon as they're ready to kind of do it, Cher shows up. Oh, my God. So now it's Lennon, Nielsen, and Cher. Okay, that's just a bizarre... The share element's a little bizarre. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, then uh, John Lennon gets a call from from Yoko in New York, and he's very upset by it, and he leaves. And we were in the middle of this Capitol Apple Records John Lennon project, record this song with Nielsen and Cher, and it comes out as a single on Warner Spector Records. What was it? I think it was called Born to Be With You or Born to Be Blue or... Wow! Yeah, you can find it. And actually, I did a, a video for the Wrecking Crew. You know, they have all these outtake videos. So I did one, and it was about that. Wow. Yeah. You've lived quite a life and had... Um... It's funny because you've mentioned significant, a story-laden moments you surely just, luck you just yeah those are i'm out of repertoire now those are those are the only interesting things that, that ever happened yeah I, I somehow <laughs> doubt that that's true pete do we have any questions before we get mike to play again we do we okay. have uh let's see where is your favorite place to perform mm. well right now it's zipper concert hall that was amazing they have such good acoustics it was amazing and uh for those of you who don't know uh, I did this concert at Zipper Hall, which is part of the Coburn School of Performing Arts. It was part of this Piano Spheres thing, which I referenced earlier, and it was their jazz debut, so to speak. But they have a beautiful, actually, they have three beautiful pianos, all nine-foot pianos. This was a gorgeous nine-foot Steinway. Their audiovisual team is just extraordinary. Mm. I mean, all of us had monitoring systems that were absolutely everything we could ask for. How In fact, Jim Keldner, he never stopped talking after the concert. He wrote me this beautiful note. He said, Michael, I could hear everything. It was just like so wonderful. Wow. Every little nuance. And it, it was important because in order for this music to kind of have legs, we needed to err on the side of being um, intimate. If we had started intimate. drowning it out, it, we would overplay and the music mm. would, would suffer. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we had moments that were dramatic, but, but the main thing was to be conversational mm-hmm. and really just react to each other and be... Full of um, the emotional quality. Well, it, well, well, that was absolutely felt a million percent. We got one more. It's a two-part yeah. question. The okay. first part is, who is your favorite artist you work with? That's an uh, that's an unanswerable question. That's a Sophie's for me. choice. I went to lunch. Do you know Bobby Columbi? Who's he's blood, sweat, and tears. He oh. he is blood, sweat, and mm-hmm. tears, and he now is a manager, and he has Chris Bodie, and he's been all over the music scene. Mm-hmm. And he took me he took me to lunch with these two guys who are really famous sportscasters. One is in radio, and one is in television. Mm-hmm. And the whole lunch was, "Who's your favorite this, and who's your favorite <laughs> that?" And I kept saying, "I don't know how to do that." It's mm-hmm. like you know. 
how, how, how can you say one is, to me they're all different and they're mm -hmm. all, you know, it's like you can say, okay, Stevie Wonder's my favorite performer. Well, what is, where does that put Michael Jackson? Mm -hmm. Where does that put Frank Sinatra? Where mm -hmm. does that put Charlie Parker? Where does that put Vladimir Horowitz if you want? You know, I mean, it's like, I don't know how to answer. I wish well, I could. Well, I think that funnels it down to the second part of their question. Can you name an artist who was a pain in the ass? Yes. Yeah, but, but will, will you? No. no. Yes, very wise. We don't do that when we're working. No, you know, the challenge is to find the person who's a pain in the ass and, and, and reach their good side. Yeah. And that can happen. I've Just learned like that marriage. from people. Have you, won, have you won people over? Sometimes. Mm -hmm. Not always. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's not an opportunity. Sometimes you're just there, you know. And, you know, when you're working in the studios as a musician, the challenge for me was finding places where I could be personal with them the skill set that's the real reason you're there yeah. you know I mean if you're playing in an orchestra for a movie mm -hmm. and you're playing written music a lot of times they don't want you to have a personality because mm -hmm. it distracts from the film mm -hmm. your your job is to be really accurate and produce a beautiful sound that has no real involvement and then there are all these other movies that, that, that do allow I mean I always like to say that when you do a movie that takes place in England in 1810 it's different than 1967 in South Alabama so, you know, then you have these movies where all of a sudden you, you can emerge. How is it for you when you go to see a film that you've done the reporting for? Do, do you feel yourself in there or are you able to watch the movie as a, as a movie? What is that experience like for you? It's different on different occasions. Mm -hmm. Gener generally, when I go to a movie, I'm a civilian. Okay. And generally, when I watch or experience anything, whether it's theater or movies or concerts, when everything's working, mm. I, I, I'm on a carpet, I'm rolling mm. through. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, if I get bored or something starts to bother me, like the film is really cool and all of a sudden nothing's happening and maybe the story's not happening mm -hmm. or something's going on, then I start getting a little bit analytical. It's like, why am I having a problem? Do you find yourself when you see a film or watch a TV show, say, think of how you would do the music differently? Does that ever... You know, that's one of the reasons I tried being a composer, and I, and I found it, at least at that time, it didn't seem like I could do it, because mm -hmm. I, I got called for the most weird reason to score a movie, and I'd never done it. And I so I'm there in the spotting session. We mm -hmm. talked about mm -hmm. spotting, you know, and so you're watching the film without the music, and you're deciding with the director what the music should be, when mm -hmm. it should start, when it should stop, anything that you can figure out. And all I could think of when I was watching this movie was, oh my God, there's no music there. <laughs> and I thought I was supposed to imagine what the music was right away, which isn't usually necessarily the case for a composer. Oh. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, I went home and I struggled and I struggled and I did do something that was liked. It was not a successful film at all. Mm -hmm. But I just, um, when I'm watching a film, I'll, I'll watch a film sometimes and I'll, I'll feel the music is inappropriate when it's distracting mm -hmm. from the film. Mm -hmm. But generally, I shouldn't say generally, off times, maybe most times, I'll watch a movie and I won't remember the music at all and it's perfect, it's absolutely great. And if I went back to hear the score or whatever, I would I would notice what's great about it. And there's sometimes when I do notice the music and it's an affirmative thing where it's bonding and yet it's still interesting, mm -hmm. you know? And, and they're all different that way. Is there something that has your passion at this stage of your life that, I mean, like doing that concert, I can imagine. That's totally, yeah. Yeah. Doing this show is pretty cool too. That's <laughs> nice. Well, I'm I'm very very. Thank you, Cindy Beagle, for making this happen. Thank you, Deborah Pearl, for initiating Deborah this, Pearl. and thank you for yeah. singing Ooh. so fabulously. Thank you, Pete George, for 
for being back there and, and, and being so wonderful. And thank you so much, Mike, because I've enjoyed this so much. Me too. So what are we going to hear before we uh, say goodnight to oh, everybody? Oh, i got to play something else. you got to play something else. Wait. We're not letting you. got to sing for yourself. What am I, what am I gonna do? <laughs> sing to myself? Yes. Yeah. You heard some vocal sure, from me? I, that happens sometimes. <laughs> I think... Um, I think I'm going to play. Um, I like to take two tunes that come from different places and put them together. Mm. And um, recently, we've lost a lot of people from the New Orleans, the R&B world. And um, there's a, a tune called "Southern Nights," which was a big hit for Glenn Campbell. Mm -hmm. But Alan Toussaint was the guy who did the original recording, and he did it really slow and swampy and southern. Here's Yardley. Hi. Is he in the frame? He will be, I think. This we're we're uh, we're on a little bit of a delay. Oh yes. Okay. He, he will be now. This is Yardley. <laughs> there he is. Yardley's gonna sing. No, he's not one. Of, he's not a howler, but he's he's a doll. So anyway, um, here we are at home. Okay, we're eating night. All right, we're gonna go back here. Come on, come on. That was your moment. Uh, so the one of the things that he did is. There's a speaker called the Leslie speaker, and it's used with a Hammond B3 organ. And it has this chorale feature where it has this slow kind of rotating chorusing effect, or it can be a tremolo, which is faster. And um, he put his voice through the, the, the Leslie speaker with the slow mm. rotating thing, and it just made it so uh, mysterious mm -hmm. and um, uh, charismatic. And, and it has this beautiful, peaceful, swampy lyric uh, pastoral spiritual quality mm. that I like and then I'm gonna go from there to come rain or come shine Aww. which is a beautiful song that, that, that dr. John made he was you know thinking about him and Ray Charles and then people like Bill Evans everybody My father used to sing it yeah mm -hmm. okay so we'll see what happens with that I love it All right. um, for those of you out there uh, next week Peter Page is gonna be with us he created um, the Fosters, and he was on Queer as Folk, and we're going to have so much fun. Even though Pete won't be with us, we will miss you. And uh, thank you all for joining us, and we're going to go out with Mike Lang playing his two-part wonderfulness. You're getting so much love, Mike. People are hitting all the love buttons here.
My Lang. Oh my gosh. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Mike Lang. Thank you, Deborah Pearl. Thank you, Pete George. We'll see you next week.